Well, good morning, church family. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we're just delighted to get the opportunity to worship with you. My name is Randy, and I'm the lead minister here at the church. And um, I, I just really appreciate the lyrics of the songs that we have just sung. And I'm mindful of um, just this truth that in my Father's house, there's a place for me. In the Father's house, there's a place for you. You're here today, you're wondering. Some of us have known God for years and years and years, and then others of us are wondering, you know, does God really love me? And I want you to know that in our Father's house, there's a place for you. Amen? So welcome. And uh, um, so if you are new, since January of 2017, uh, our church has really been unpacking a theme called, So the World Will Know. And it's based on Jesus' prayer the night before he was crucified, in which he said that you know, our unity in him would testify to the reality of, uh, to, to, of, of his life to the world. And so over the last almost two years now, We've been talking about kingdom perspective, learning to see life through God's eyes, learning to look at our family, our neighborhood, our work, our world through the lens of God's eyes, kingdom perspective. We are citizens of heaven. That's our primary citizenship is in heaven, and that changes everything, and and. As we do that, we experience as God's people a unity that is otherworldly. And so we've been talking about relentless unity, how our oneness in Christ uh, shouts his fame to our culture and, and this world. And then that just leads to a, a boldness to tell others what Jesus has done in and through our lives, fearless evangelism, kingdom perspective, relentless unity, and fearless evangelism. And uh, uh, this theme, so the world will know, has really led us to be sensitive to the dynamics and demographics of our church, and specifically that our, our church, our oneness, is uh, not a oneness of clones, but a oneness that that is... That uh, is an a orchestration of all of our a distinctiveness that God has wired into our lives. And so, so as a church, we want to be sensitive that, that the dynamics of our church reflect the dynamics of our community, ethnically, educationally, generationally, politically, vocationally, that to be a New Testament church is not only to imitate the church as we see in the book of Acts, but the church as we see in Revelation chapter 7, 9, and 10, where the nations and languages and tribes and people from all over the world gather as one people and give praise to the Lamb of God and to recognize that we are who Jesus describes in Revelation chapter 1. We are a kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom. Uh, so, so in Christ, we are holy ones. 
In Christ, we are his temple. In Christ, we are sons and daughters of the Father. In Christ, we are slaves of Christ, heirs of Christ, chosen in Christ. That is who Christ says we are. And that reality sets the tone for all of our relationships, especially as we navigate our distinctives. And, and we're as different in this room as you know, my two sons are just different. They both have the last name Boltinghouse, but they're just different. And we're different. We, na- we carry the name Christian, but God's, God's given us different stories and different cultures. And sometimes those differences show up in funny ways, as you're about to see in this video by our uh, former youth minister here at Windsor Road, Brant Hansen. He's now in radio. Uh, Brant and his uh, co-host, Sherry Lynn, have this funny video that I want to show you about how our differences show up. Let's watch. Good morning, our sermon. Yes! (laughs) Our sermon is from Romans chapter 5. Our sermon is from Romans chapter chapter 5, verse verse 1. Verse 1, that's my book. You're preaching from my book. (laughs) Woo! It says, therefore, Therefore, we are justified. How? We are justified by faith Faith. through our Lord Jesus Jesus Christ. Christ. Yes, we bless him. We bless him. Hey. Let's close with prayer. Yes. Um, Yes. Yes. Let him use you. Let him use you. Let him use you. Let him use you. Help him, Jesus. (laughs) hey glory lord we just yes we lord we come we just come before you where we just we come where we come lord we just Lord, we just tr- Lord, we just try to come before you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. makes me laugh. But what a great, what a great illustration about where we are as a church family. God be praised too. Amen. Amen. And God be praised because what unites us outranks what is distinct about us. And that leads to our 
learning here from Romans chapter 14. Last week, we covered part of Paul's letter to the Romans, which dealt with this whole issue of how we are to pursue peace and mutual upbuilding in our differences, and specifically when our consciences differ over matters of opinion. So take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go back to Romans chapter 14. You'll find that on page 948 and 949 of your church Bibles. What I want to do this morning is review last week's lesson from Romans 14, 1 through 12. I received uh, several important questions from you, both in the fireside room and uh, through email. Uh, and I just think it's important for us to review some of those questions as a church family. Uh, and then we'll look, and I'll read specifically verses 13 to 23. So just a quick review of what we covered last week. So here's the background. This is why the book of Romans, or one of the reasons why the book of Romans it was written, the house churches in Rome. So early Christianity met in homes, not in facilities like this. It wasn't till about the third, late third century till the facilities occurred. But the house churches in Rome, full of Christians, predominantly Hebrew. But in the year A.D. 49, the emperor Claudius expelled the Hebrews. Christians, non-Christians, if you're Hebrew, you're out. On their return, about 10 years later, the house churches were predominantly Gentile. So there's a huge dynamic shift that's going on here. And so some Hebrew believers were uncomfortable consuming non-kosher foods and beverages. Their consciences did not allow them to eat and drink, but for other believers, it was fine. Now, in Romans chapter 14, Paul uses the word weak to describe those Christians who had consciences that did not allow them to eat or drink. Now, Americans don't like the word weak, but that's the word Paul uses. He uses weak and strong. But here's what I need us to keep in mind. When Paul talks about the weak and the strong, he's not pulling out two boxes and then putting people in one of the two boxes. So he's not saying, well, you all are strong, and you all are weak. That's not what he's saying. That's not what's going on here. He does use the terms strong and weak or strong and weak. He uses the term strong and weak, but it's not an either or. It's like it's a spectrum. Strong and weak in regard to a particular issue. So if it's a spectrum, then that means I may be strong here, but there's somebody who's going to be stronger than me over here. And that means there's going to be somebody weaker over here. And I, I, no matter where I am on the spectrum, on this particular issue. So on the issue of food and drink, uh, I might be strong here. But on another, on another issue, I might find myself weak. So 
uh, trick-or-treating. I find myself strong on that. Not just because I like candy. Okay? But I'm thinking to myself, and we, this is just how we thought. Because it's a matter of, of conscience. This is just how we thought. Well, I mean, it's the only night of the year where our neighbors are expecting somebody to show up. So I want to get to know my neighbors a little more. So, I'm, so I'm, we're strong in that area, see. But in another particular area, uh, like Christmas, I, I'm weak. What do you mean by that? Well, if I were strong, I'd say every day's Christmas Day. Every day's every day. We don't have to have a special day every day, okay? But I'm not strong. I'm weak. So we're going to have a Christmas Eve service, okay? Yeah. And, and when it comes to Mother's Day, I'm even weaker, <laughs> okay? All right? But, but, but you see what I'm saying? You don't just put people in one or two boxes. It's not a box. It's a spectrum per issue. So I might be strong in one area and weak in another. And that's, where, that's what Paul is saying here to these Christians. And so then how do the weak and the strong, the Jews and the Gentiles, pursue peace? Well, last week, we talked about two important words, listen and learn. Listen and learn. We said, listen to your conscience. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe to be right and wrong. Your conscience is a gift from God. It's a guide. It's a monitor. It's a witness. It's a judge. Guide your behavior, monitors how well you perform, testifies to how well you did, and then it judges you. Your conscience doesn't do, it's complicated. It's not a dimmer switch, it's an off-on. It pronounces guilt or innocence. And your conscience speaks to you. Your conscience, you've, you're the most influential person in your life because you talk to yourself all day long. Your conscience talking to yourself. And so, so assume that the voice in your head is your conscience. And that led to a question that someone asked me. It was a great question. How do I know the difference between the voice of conscience and the voice of God? Well, I'm not saying God can't speak to you audibly. I'm not saying that. I'm saying assume that when you hear a voice in your head, it's your conscience. How do you know the difference between the voice of conscience and the voice of God? Well, scripturally speaking, if you looked at those who experienced God speaking, uh, there are these two traits. Number one, God's voice is clear. When he speaks, he doesn't mumble. Clarity, and then secondly, it's terrifying. Okay? So, I mean, what's the first words usually out of an angel's mouth? Fear not. <laughs> right? And so, you know, have I heard the voice of God? Well, if it's clear... And then if we've got to go get an AED machine to get the paddles out to poof, let's bring him back so that we, heard, we hear what God said to him, then you probably heard the voice of God. Okay, you're not laughing. Um, but, so. but, but whether it's the voice of conscience or the voice of God, 
Whether the key question is this, is what I'm hearing aligned with biblical truth? Because Jesus said, the word of God cannot be broken, and God will never deny himself. So listen to your conscience, but it's not infallible. Your conscience can be formed. It can be trained. It can be strengthened. It can be calibrated. And we calibrate our conscience or we recalibrate our conscience by Scripture saturation. So listen. Listen and learn. Learn. Learn between matters of opinion versus matters of first importance. Opinion versus first importance. And Thus the question, well, how do we tell the difference? Well, matters of first importance are essentials to Christianity uh, such that if you add to or subtract, you take away Christianity. So I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul actually uses that phrase of first importance. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he goes straight to the historical, bodily resurrection of Christ. Christianity says that if Jesus has not bodily, historically, in time, space, event, resurrected from the grave, then then we're to be pitied among all people. So the bodily resurrection is a matter of first importance. Uh, The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God is one being, three persons. That's in Romans 8. That's in Ephesians chapter 1. That's a matter of first importance. Um, Creedal language, creedal language, language that speaks of belief in who Jesus is. And that creedal language shows up in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he descended into greatness to the cross, to death, and then the Father super exalted him to the highest place. That's a matter of first importance, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Or Colossians 1, 15 to 21, this Christ him. Or 1 Timothy 3, 16, behold, the mystery of godliness is great. God appeared in a body. Uh, so orthodoxy concerning Jesus is that he's fully human, Fully divine, one person, two natures. Divine and human. Fully human, fully divine, one person, two natures. Any heretical teaching about Jesus then and now usually violates one of those four traits. Fully human, fully divine, one person, two natures. So that's, those are scripture uh, records of matters of first importance. And then let's consider some of the creeds of the, of the church. I'm thinking of the old Roman creed in the second century, the Nicene Creed of A.D. 325, the Creed of Constantinople in A.D. 381, the Apostles' Creed in A.D. 390. What's similar about those creeds is that they're organized around the Trinity. There's a section about what is to be believed about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these creeds clarified what early Christians believed as apostolic doctrine. Those beliefs are matters of first importance. There are behaviors that are matters of first importance. And here's what I mean by that. Biblically named sins are matters of first importance. 
Biblically named matters of virtues and vices are matters of first importance. They do not fall into the category of opinion. So your conscience is never free to call moral what the Bible has called immoral. Your conscience is not free to countermand what God has called sin. So matters of first importance. On the other hand, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of opinions ranging from Jewish dietary regulations, holidays, uh, do I homeschool, do I public school, do I private school, do I Christian private school, what, you know, trick-or-treat, Santa Claus. And concerning these opinions, the Lord leaves in to the court of each person's conscience. Now think about that for just a minute, church family. What does that say about God that he would delegate some matters to the court of our own consciences? What's that say about who he is? It says he's a good dad. He's a good father. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to assume responsibilities. So I I don't need my almost 30-year-old and almost 26-year-old sons coming to me, asking me, you know, Dad, should I listen to country music or not? You know, well, of course you should. What's the matter with you? I mean, (laughs) you know, that's for you to figure out, sweetheart. (laughs) Okay? I mean, that's a path to maturity. God loves us so much that he delegates some issues. And it's not that they're unimportant. It's that they're, that they're not of first importance. And he's teaching, listen, he's teaching and training your conscience for the new heavens and the new earth where we will reign and rule without sin, without Satan, without death. This is preparatory, church family. So, so listen and, and, and learn. And, and, and it's your conscience. Your conscience. Your conscience has no jurisdiction over my life. It has jurisdiction over your life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 29, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So that means your conscience may allow something that my conscience does not allow. So then the question, how are we to treat each other when our consciences differ? And that's what we learn now in Romans 14, 13 to 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is God's word. So then the big idea of this chapter is simply the word welcome. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Now by welcome, Paul does not mean, you know, uh, well, just stomach one another. No, he says, welcome one another. This entire conversation is framed from the start in 14.1 to the conclusion in 15.7 by the words, welcome. Welcome one another. Now, how do we do that? This is what we learn in verses 13 to 23. Don't judge, sympathize. Don't flaunt, Surrender. Don't destroy. Seek to build up. That's what Paul tells us in these verses. Now, most of what he says is to the strong. And we'll talk about why in just a little bit. But let's get into verse 13, where Paul says, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So to the strong, Paul says, look, don't roll your eyes at your weaker brothers and sisters on that particular issue. And don't ask why they can't just get with the program. Don't be judgy. Instead, sympathize with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Walk in their shoes. So assume, church family, that when we gather in a room like this, or when we're out in the foyer, or when you're in a small group, or with your brothers and sisters in Christ, assume that there will be a variety of positions on points of conscience. I mean, do we, want a, do we really want a church of clones? Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, and then, then and only then will I fellowship with you. Is that what we want? Say no. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I mean, that's not what Paul is saying. Listen to me. And this is so important. And this is why it's so important for you to be grounded in what are matters of first importance. Because if you don't know the difference between a matter of first importance and an opinion, then guess what? Everything is going to be a matter of first importance. And that's where our culture is today. And another word for that is relativism. But a matter of first importance is, no, this is an objective capital T truth that exists outside of me. And And, and, and what Paul is trying to teach these believers is, look, you know, 
pursue peace with one another. And the way to do that, and hear me now, what is not on the table is to have the strong Christians meet in this house and the weak Christians meet in this house. Paul's solution to an already segregated Roman culture is not more segregation. So welcome one another in the name of Christ and assume that when we gather, there will be variety of positions on points of conscience. And in verse 14, Paul goes on record with his own view. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So Paul's own conscience is at peace with the flexibility of consuming kosher or non-kosher, keeping special days or not. And that was no small thing because Paul was a legalistic Pharisee who once persecuted Christians. But the gospel reconstructed and recalibrated his conscience. That said, Paul does not try to change anybody else's conscience. Yet this is usually our first reaction, isn't it, when someone differs from us? We want to change their minds, convince them we're right. You know, I'm right, you're wrong. Now fix yourself. Would it be helpful if the entire church had a calibrated conscience like Paul's? Well, yeah, but Paul is wise enough to appreciate that people grow at different paces. And so in verse 14, Paul sympathizes with the weak when he says that it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. And, and, And how can that be? How can something clean for you be unclean for me? Because when I eat it or drink it or use it or participate in it, I think it's unclean. And... And thus I violate my conscience, resulting in feelings of guilt and shame and embarrassment and dishonor. And someone may ask, well, why should it matter if it's just your own conscience that's hurt, as long as you're not hurting anybody else? Now, what if your child said that? What parent would say, yeah, yeah, it's okay to harm yourself if it's just you that's harmed. No loving parent wants their child harmed, period. Furthermore, while you may think you're the only one affected, others are too. Your struggle with a guilty conscience affects those who live with you. And it might cause them to resent and despise the strong. So so uncleanness is not about food or drink. It's about your heart. And the thing that makes a clean thing unclean is our failure to live out of God's sufficient grace. Because if I'm living out of God's sufficient grace, then I would be able to say, well, you know what? No, thank you. I don't do that because God is my portion. Or I would be able to say, yeah, I I do that because God is my portion. But if I feel I need someone's approval to the point of risking the pollution of my conscience by doing what I think is wrong, that's not faith. And that's what makes it unclean. So so what matters is not whether you eat or not or drink or not. What matters is your heart. What does my behavior say about my heart? 
Does my heart trust God as my supplier and my treasure? Or does my behavior disclose a deficit of trust? Do I value a behavior I disapprove of more than I value God? That's what sin is. So don't judge. Sympathize, Paul says. And then he says, don't flaunt surrender. Don't flaunt your freedom. Surrender it. So there's there's no need for us to impress others with our liberty. Nobody cares to see how enlightened we are. You enjoy your freedom between you and God. Isn't that what Paul says in verse 22? The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. When Sarah and I would have our Muslim friends over to the house, we never served them pork. We never served them pork. Why? Because we love them. And they're not in Christ. So how much more, then, do we want to express love and sensitivity to those in Christ. And so it's, it's, it's nothing. It's nothing for us. We'll have, we'll have chicken with our Muslim friends and we'll have pork with our Christian friends. And, we're, and, and our Muslim friends don't need to, we don't need to send our Muslim friends a menu of what we had with our Christian friends. Keep between yourself and God. Don't. Don't judge, sympathize, don't flaunt your freedom, surrender it. And, 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 and here's the deal. See, a clean thing for, for the strong, a clean thing becomes unclean if I parade it before the weak. And that's what leads to Paul's strongest words in verse 15. Don't destroy your brothers and sisters. Seek to build them up. And we read words like stumble and stumbling block. And we wonder, what does that mean? It doesn't mean this. To stumble does not mean to disappoint or to annoy or to irritate. It means to trip someone up and cause them to fall down spiritually so as to hurt themselves eternally. It means to destroy them to hell shipwrecking their faith. If your brother or sister doesn't like your freedoms, well, that's their problem. But if you flaunt your freedom before the fragile conscience of a weaker brother or sister, and then they shipwreck their faith, well, that's, that becomes your problem. Because verse 20 says that your brother or sister is the work of God. Do not destroy the work of God. So yes, you are your brother's keeper. And here's the bullseye of this passage. It's verse 17. Here's the, here's, the, here's the why of it all, right? What? Welcome one another. How? You know, don't judge, sympathize. and uh, Don't flaunt, surrender. And, and don't destroy, build up. Well, Why? Because the kingdom of God is not about food and drink. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, why those three words? Why didn't Paul use the words faith, hope, and love? Because righteousness, peace, and joy are summarizing what Paul has said from Romans 1 all the way to Romans 13. And those are words of first importance. Christ's empire is greater than anyone's preference. 
So don't destroy, build one another up. What does that mean? That means let's help one another get to heaven. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 12, uh, 9 to 21. Love one another, verse 10, with brotherly affection, Romans 12, 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. God wants to use each of us to help all of us endure to the end. For Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Christ died for your brother. So show that by your love from Christ that Christ did indeed die for him. Now, I told you that these verses are predominantly to the strong. But why? Why to the strong? Well, glance over at chapter 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. That's why. Because Christ was strong. He did not judge, he sympathized. He did not flaunt, he surrendered. He did not come to destroy, he came to build up. He came to destroy sin and hell. He he came to build us up. And if Christ surrendered his life on the cross to save your brother, can you not surrender some freedom so that your brother might be built up? Do I love my liberty more than I love my brother or sister? And here is where we get really to the heart of what Christian liberty is. And what I want to share with you comes from a book that I referenced last week that I really would recommend that you, you, you get. It's called uh, Conscience. It's by Andrew Nacelli. Nacelli. Andrew Nacelli. Conscience. He defines Christian liberty um, from the Apostle Paul. But here's his definition. Christian liberty is the freedom to discipline yourself to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. Christian liberty, the freedom to discipline yourself to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. So so Christian liberty is not about you and your freedom to do whatever it is you want to do. It's all about the freedom to discipline yourself to be flexible for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your weaker and broken. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and then Andrew Nacelli just fleshes out what this looks like with several, several startling examples of cross-cultural uh, ministry and missions. Here's what he says. Christian liberty is the freedom to eat dog when natives in the village serve it to you. Christian liberty is the freedom to choose never again to eat southern barbecue and double bacon cheeseburgers because you're called to serve Christ in the Muslim areas in Detroit. Christian liberty is about a clean freak who restrains himself from getting out his hand sanitizer every time he shakes someone's hand or touches something in a third world country. And he talks about a missionary couple who wrecked their ministry because that kind of fastidiousness was lodged in their conscience. Christian liberty is the freedom to sing and dance to tribal hymns the way the tribal people sing and dance to them, even though you're an introvert. 
Christian liberty is about a Corinthian Christian getting invited to his unsaved neighbor's house for a feast and then being served meat that he doesn't want to eat because of his former convictions, but he eats it anyway for the sake of the gospel because that host's eternal soul matters a whole lot more than some scruple about not eating meat. And Christian liberty is about another Corinthian Christian at the same party who has no issues about eating such meat. And just as he gets ready to sink that slab of steak under the plate, someone sitting next to him leans over and says, you know, that's been sacrificed to an idol, don't you? And for the sake of that man and his weak conscience, the meat lover puts it back and says, well, pass me the potatoes, please. And that's what Christian liberty is about. Being free to discipline yourself, to put the gospel and others first. And that's what I want for us as a church family. That's really what I want for us. So welcome one another. And, 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 and here's a word. We've been talking to the strong. But let me just talk to my weak brothers and sisters, my weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's the word. It's from Nacelli's book. I just pass it on. It's that good. He says this to the weaker. You can't live the kind of scenarios I've played out if your conscience is weakened with restrictions that God hasn't instituted. If you've turned 50 opinions into 50 laws of your conscience then those are 50 fewer areas in which you are going to be able to follow Paul's example of flexibility. Because if your conscience says that those 50 issues are sin, then you're not going to be able to bend on any of them. And and if what you eat and drink is in the category of black and white, then you're not going to be able to flex on that. And if pristine hygiene has made its way into your conscience as a matter of right and wrong, you're not going to be able to flex on that. And if what you do with your hands during the worship time is is a moral absolute, you're not going to be able to flex on that. And if your conscience won't let you dance to tribal hymns, don't go to Africa. Romans chapter 14 is just a few years away from Nero's perverted decision to torch Christians for the burning of Rome. I mean, he blamed the Christians for what he was responsible for, and he stuck their bodies on torches and lit them up. Kind of puts this in context, doesn't it? Could it be that God has meant the the little clashes of culture in the church as preparatory for the harsh clashes coming in the world? What if God wants to use this place as a laboratory where the messy spirituality of weak and strong can be worked out? And so Paul intentionally connects the messiness of the weak, strong discussion in Romans 14 with mission in Romans 15. When he says in verses 8 and 9, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness and in order that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So, So flexibility in church life gets you ready for flexibility in sharing Christ. So then, welcome one another because Christ welcomed you. He didn't judge, he sympathized. He didn't flaunt, he surrendered. 
He didn't destroy. He built up. That's what he did. And now, church family, it's our turn. Amen.